You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tuss, and today I'll be speaking with author Casey Parks about her new memoir titled Diary of a Misfit. Casey is a reporter for the Washington Post who writes about gender and family issues. She has also worked as a reporter at the Jackson Free Press and at the (laughs) Oregonian. Her articles have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, USA Today, and even on ESPN, among others. She is a former Spencer Fellow at Columbia University, and the book we're going to discuss today, her memoir, was awarded the 2021 J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Award. Welcome to the show, Casey. Thank you so much. Well, whenever I interview someone who has published a memoir, I always ask how family and friends have responded to the revelations in the memoir especially to their portrayal? Well, unfortunately, like a lot of the people in the book have died, so they don't really get to weigh in. Maybe I'll find out in the afterlife what they thought, but (laughs) um, only a couple of people in there are still living. And it's interesting, like no one has had any big complaints, but when you write about people, they have things that matter to them that you would never in a million years think about. So for instance, there's a part in the book where I write about when I was growing up, all the women in my family had this idea that if you ate a hard boiled egg before dinner and like filled the egg with salt, whoever you dreamed about is who you would marry. Right. And I was writing about my mom's sisters and all the different men they dreamed about. And I said that one aunt had dreamed about four men and she got so mad at me. She was like, I only (laughs) dreamed about three men. And (laughs) like, I would just never, you know, think that would be something she would care about. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's another part where, We had lived in this single wide trailer that only had two bedrooms. And I was writing in the book actually quite critically about myself that I refused to share the bedroom with my brother. And so he had to sleep in the kitchen. He kind of like made walls out of cardboard boxes. And I just went to see him a couple of weeks ago and he was like, I need to talk to you about something in your book. (laughs) And he was like, what you, he's like, you forgot to write in there that we did a coin toss for that room and I won. Ah. (laughs) And I was like, I don't remember that, but I promise you, like, if I did, I would have put it in the book because the point was that I was a jerk as a teenager. But um, it's just, you know, like little stuff like that. Like no one has come after me for the overall like themes. Although I will say quite a few of my really conservative relatives have told me that they never, you know, they never really wanted to reject me for being gay and that they always, they never thought of me as a misfit. Like they thought I was just kind of like unique and cool. And it has reminded me that like a lot of times I have projected a hatred that maybe didn't even exist. Like I just assumed my family would hate me and So I wrote them off without ever giving them a chance to to prove me otherwise. Well, and times have changed. And so maybe maybe you were right at the time and uh, perspectives on the other side have changed. Yeah, I mean, it has been 20 years since a lot of the events in the book. Well, let me ask you one other question about memoir writing. I, I actually taught a memoir writing class. And one of the things that the folks would say to me periodically was, you know, I really thought I knew my history. I really thought I knew this, but when I had to put it on paper and write it, I learned a whole bunch of different things. Did you, did you have such an experience? Oh gosh, I learned so much about my family members and about myself. I mean, I've kept a journal since I was a little kid and it was interesting to go back to some of those journals and 
and see like my childhood self reporting things because I a lot of times I would think like, oh, your life wasn't that bad. And I'd go back and look at some of the journals and think, oh, my gosh, it was actually worse. But then also, like, I, I think probably the most, I don't know if exciting is the word, but um, revelatory thing for me was, like, really going back and reporting about my mother's life, kind of from a dispassionate reporter point of view mm-hmm, of just mm-hmm. like, okay, what what forces affected this person? Why did she act the way she did? Yeah. And I remember one thing that really struck me is, you know, we grew up really poor and I had kind of always thought of that as like a personal failing of my parents. But I was born in 83. My parents were teenagers and they were trying to get jobs in the mid 80s. And I don't know how many of your listeners will remember this, but the mid 80s in Louisiana were not a great economic time for anybody. That's like, right. That's right. Oil, the price of oil just totally bottomed out. Um, the state economist there actually told me that so many people left Louisiana in the mid-1980s, that the state ran out of U-Hauls at one point. Hmm. And wow. I think that just helped me really reframe, like, you know, why my parents turned out the way they did. And it was interesting sometimes to write about them because I would, you know, my memories, they were old. And I would look back and I'd be like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, my mom was 22 at this point. You right. know, like, that's a baby. Like, of course she made mistakes. She was a kid trying yeah. to... Raise a kid. Now, before we get into the details of the books for, for our listeners, you didn't actually start off to write a book, right? I mean, y'all were going to try to put together a documentary, correct? Yes. I Well, I, actually, my very first iteration of this was I wanted to make a podcast. I really wanted to, to get on the radio show, This American Life. And so I bought a really cheap recorder, <laughs> like a reporter recorder from Office Depot or something. And that's how I initially started it, just interviewing my grandma with that recorder. And then I read somewhere like about the recorder, This American Life used. So I bought a better recorder and I went down there and I kind of videotaped things incidentally that first time. Mm-hmm. And then I like sent in an application to This American Life and I never heard back. And so my mom was like, forget podcasts. Nobody knows what those are. Like, let's make a documentary. And so then for many years, I was making a documentary. And, and it evolved it, it, into it evolved into your memoir, right? It did, because I, I had a lot of trouble figuring out how to make the, the documentary, in part because I, I couldn't figure out what the narrative arc was. Gotcha. And so I went to grad school and they're at Columbia University, and there's a really famous book writing class there. And so I applied to get into that class thinking, not thinking I would write a book, but thinking... Cause, so in that class, you have to outline your entire book. And I thought, well, this will give me a chance to figure out what the narrative arc of my documentary is. Right. And right. then once I, I got into that class, I realized, oh, you're actually much better at writing than you are filmmaking. Maybe you should <laughs> stick to what you actually right. know how to do. Right. So for me, having read the book, which is fabulous, it's really several stories wrapped up in one. There's the story about the town you grew up in. There is your own story. There's the story of your mother, which, of course, overlaps with the story of your relationship with her. There's even the story of the recognition of gay rights in America. And finally, there is the story of Roy, the person we might say is one of the misfits, uh, which the book gets from which the book gets its title. Uh, But we'll talk more about each of these. But I'm wondering if you knew as you were writing that there were these intertwining or interconnected stories. 
I think by the time I was writing, I did. But when I was actually doing all of the reporting initially um, over like t- from 2009 to 2019, I certainly did not think it would be about all of those things. I thought it would just be about Roy. And then my book writing professor from Columbia really encouraged me to put myself in it. And then he also encouraged me to put my mother in it. Right. And I was super resistant at the time because I'm a newspaper reporter. Like we don't write about ourselves normally and we don't write about our families. And he just kind of pushed me to try. And I went back to all the videotape I had recorded and I, I kind of got to like re-report those 10 years because we had taped everything. I could just go back and relive it and, and see what happened in the moments yeah. between learning about Roy. And it it really, I guess I try to figure out how to put this. You know, my mother had passed away by the time I started writing the book. And so my interests in her had changed when I was in my twenties. I, I didn't really feel that interested in her. I felt just kind of oppressed by her. But then when I was in my 30s and I was writing it, I I felt much more curious about her and and started to understand the ways that this town had shaped her. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to talk. So I think I was able to do those those threads in a way that I never would have been able to do in my 20s. Yeah, she's important, and we're going to talk about her. You grew up in North Louisiana. Uh, in the town of Delhi, a place you write, quote, whose best days were behind it, close quote. And and I don't know. I what... actually grew up in Monroe. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, part of the story okay. occurs in Delhi, though, correct? Yeah, my mom and my grandmother grew up in Delhi, but um, I grew up in Monroe. I mean, we took a lot of trips to Delhi, but right. um, my mom and grandma had kind of escaped Delhi at that point for the, the big city of Monroe. <laughs> okay. Well, there's a poignant line in the book, one of many. Uh, that relates to the religion you grew up with and your struggle with it in your life. Uh, you were raised, uh, if I understand correctly, to think that the Bible was inerrant, and you watched your church vote out a family because their daughter, I think her name was Tony, was gay. And so you write, quote, I'd experienced too many bad pastors, too many holy men willing to destroy a person's time on earth under the guise of delivering them to heaven, close quote. How do you think religion shaped you growing up, and and what impact, if any, does it have on you today? Oh, gosh. I I was about to say I could write a whole book about this, but I guess I have. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) You know, when I was a kid, religion was everything to me. It was my community. It was my foundation. It shaped the way I saw the world. And that was in good and bad ways. I mean, I spent a lot of my childhood really terrified because, my mom told me if I sinned for even a second, a demon could possess me. And, you know, we talked a lot about the rapture, and I was scared that I was going to get left behind and have to get the mark of the beast to get groceries. So I spent a lot of time really anxious about that. But then I also spent a lot of time just, like, completely wrapped up in love from the people at church. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we went several days a week, and all of the youth pastors, like, were really stabilizing figures in my life because I had a really unstable home life and they just gave me a lot of love and compassion and and that meant a lot to me at the time. Um, But ultimately when I came out as gay, I also got driven from the church. My pastor like went before our congregation and prayed 
save her and take her. And the idea was like, I should ask forgiveness for being gay and then I would die immediately. And that wound took me a long time to understand. I think right after I just kind of walled myself off and I stopped talking to everyone from that church. Mm -hmm. And I thought like, nobody can touch me. Nobody can hurt me. And it wasn't really until I was writing this book that I realized how pained I was because I had lost this, this central foundation of my life. And I lost all these people that I loved and I felt truly rejected, you know, like by mm-hmm. someone that I thought was really holy and someone I thought knew more than anyone in the world. And it, I think it made me a very distrustful adult. It made me a very scared adult. It made me a very closed off adult. And I think I'm only now figuring out how to like reopen myself to the world. And like, it's interesting. I'm actually writing a story right now for the Washington Post about a teenager, a transgender teenager who got kicked out of his church. And he had a completely different response than I did. I was like, okay, no, I'm shutting down. But he really just thought, like, no, God still loves me. And so he has dedicated his life to, like, reaching out to other people to show them that God loves them and trying to kind of unite liberals and conservatives around this, like, shared idea of love. And he's just so optimistic, and I wish I had had someone like that in my life who's like, no one can take this love for me. And yeah. he, he loves all of the Bible verses that are very much about love, and he— when I'm interviewing him, he's like, well, what about the woman at the well? What about Job? What about Moses? Like Jesus, God and Jesus always pick people who are struggling. Like the people who are most important in the Bible are actually not perfect. And um, I didn't think that way when I was his age. You know, I was just yeah, like, everyone yeah. hates me. I have to run away. Well, some of that's psychological, but it's also a different time now, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I'm certain that plays in. Let me ask you this. There is a there is several tragedies, but there is a tragedy at the center of the story that relates to your mother that involved her uh, high school sweetheart, uh, a fellow named Cam Milton. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, when my mom was a teenager, um, her she, there was another guy at school that she really looked up to and I think they kind of dated on and off, and I'm not totally sure what their relationship was, except my mother was really in love with him. And they were both super ambitious in this tiny town. They they were the ones who always made the honor roll. They joined every club. And he was a real intellectual, and, and she was as well. And I think she felt like kind of misunderstood for that. Like they both kept journals, and they, she didn't know anyone else who kept a journal. And the day they were going to go to prom together and the day my mom was buying her prom dress, he shot himself in his pickup truck and and died by suicide. And, you know, I think that just shaped the rest of her life because it, it, it was an intense grief that she never got over. She, she wound up meeting my dad like maybe 10 days later and got pregnant with me really soon. And, um, she, at, at her, at Cam's funeral, an oak tree fell and uh, like a branch, a big branch fell off an oak tree and hit her on the head. And she wound up having to go to the hospital and they gave her Percocet and that started a lifelong addiction to opioids. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, and it, I just don't think she ever recovered from that. Yeah, in fact, that was going to be my next question. For for most of the book, uh, your relationship with your mother is difficult, to say the least. I mean, she's a prescription drug abuser, uh, a hypochondriac. She ran up a credit card debt under your name. And she said some pretty terrible things about you when you came out as gay. But as perhaps one of the redemptive parts of the story, there is a reconciliation. Uh, were you surprised by that? You know, it's interesting because when you live a life, it, it takes a lot longer than a book. So it was a slow process, and it didn't necessarily feel as revelatory as it might in the book. Um, but there were there were moments, I think, when I could look back and, and see, like, wow, we've come a really long way. I mean, she, she walked me down the aisle when I got married, um, and she... She gave a speech. Well, she the, gave a speech, didn't she? She spoke. She to gave a speech at the um, at the wedding, and you know, she became a, a big crusader for gay rights later in in yeah, life. Yeah. And um, I know she really, I know she really did love me. And I think one thing that I've had to reckon with over the last few years is that a lot of our relationship and the things that have been really hard for me were not actually about me, but about her own yeah. self worth yeah. and. Um, you know, she was really hard on me, for instance, about school. Like, I made, um, this is going to sound braggy, but I made a 30 on the ACT, and her response to me was not congratulatory at all. It was, I made a 34. Why didn't you do better? Yeah. And I felt really ashamed of myself. And, like, later, you can actually look up how many people score, like, what score on the ACT in Louisiana. And I looked it up, and there was only, like, eight or ten people who made a 30 that year that I took it in the whole state. And, like, if, I wish I'd had someone that was like, great job, like, you're, you're performing as the best in the state. But I, I didn't. And it has it turned me into someone that, like, no praise was ever enough. And I became, like, a really deep workaholic who just like really hated everything I did and felt like I could never accomplish enough. Well, but you know, but we, I think that was really about her, like, yeah. and, because she didn't get to go to college. She cleaned houses for a living. And I think she had just a deep well of insecurity. And the only way to feel better about that was to make me feel bad about myself. Well, but you also, as a child, you know, this is true for all of us uh, with rare exception. Uh, it's difficult to see your parents as human. It's difficult to understand what they've gone through. But as you get older, uh, you get a chance, uh, because of your own life experiences, I guess, to understand and see them through a different lens, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, at this point, I'm older than my mom was when I left home. Yeah. And, you know, even just that allows me to think about her so much differently. Well, there's a moment in the book, and this goes back to the, maybe the reconciliation that really struck me. Your mother had a 1979 Susan B. Anthony dollar that Cam Milton, the, the high school sweetheart who had died, had given her, and she kept it. But then at some point, as you two are starting to re- reconcile, she gives it to you. To me, that was not only emotional, but it seemed she was saying she didn't need to hang on to the memory of Cam anymore because she had you. Am I am I reading too much into that? Wow, that is a really beautiful reading. I hadn't, I haven't understood. You know, she did tell me when she gave it to me, I don't need this anymore, and I didn't understand why she was saying that. So I appreciate, um, <laughs> I appreciate that read. I think maybe you're right. You know, when she gave it to me, 
she felt like she was on an up moment in her life too. She had gotten a job and she um, had earned a thousand dollars in a paycheck, which was for her was the biggest paycheck she'd ever gotten. And, um, and she's letting go of the past because she has a future with you. Well, yeah, I thought that in the moment, but it, but she didn't actually have a future, but I understand. Um, right. I actually wear that. Um, my, I've, I've since gotten divorced, but, um, my ex spouse actually turned that, that silver dollar into a necklace for me and I wear uh, it every day. All right. Now look, another aspect of the story, really a key aspect that kind of holds it all together revolves around the person known as Roy, a woman who lived as a man in Delhi. Now, someone your gr- grandmother had told you about who used to live in Delhi. I don't want to give away too much of the story, but since you never met Roy, I'm wondering if you can explain why your grandmother's stories about Roy prompted you to go on this quest to find out what you could about Roy. Yeah, so there's quite a few things that drew, uh, that drew me to Roy. First, um, my grandmother told me about him right after I came out as gay. And the way she put it is she said, I grew up across the street from a woman who lived as a man. Now, I myself, like, never wanted to live as a man. and I, I don't identify as transgender. But I did have, like, a lot of um, boyish style. Like, at this point, I had a buzz cut, and I like to wear little neckties and stuff. And I didn't know anyone else who dressed like that or wore their hair like that. I mean, the only gay person I quote unquote knew at that point in my life was Ellen DeGeneres. And obviously we were not like close personal friends or anything. So I really had no gay community. I had no idea how do I live like this. And my grandmother told me that people did not hate Roy. She told me that people loved Roy and that blew my mind because, as I said, I'd just been kicked out of church. My mother was saying some pretty um, painful things to me. And my grandmother telling me that there was a town where people loved this person who, you know, maybe didn't fit like the stereotypical Southern gender norms just made me feel hopeful that like there will be people who love me and maybe I can keep my little buzz cut and my ties and like still be still have love. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm going to ask you an unfair question, but this is kind of how the story hit me. Uh, do you think your grandmother had a crush on Roy? I do. And <laughs> I'm so mad that I never asked her because ah. it took me, she, you know, she would often tell me like, I wish you could see a picture of him. And it took me a long time to find a picture of him. Mm-hmm. And when I finally did, I took it to her and the look in her eye, like she just sighed and she said something like, he was handsome. And I was like, okay, <laughs> well, I see what's yeah, going on it, here. It comes through in the story, not hard, but like just enough, you know, you can kind of pick it up to, to wonder. So I thought I had to ask you about that. Now, she must have also been a character because I, I'm going to quote something that she <laughs> apparently said. Um I don't know if this is right after you came out or not, but she said that, quote, some people eat hot dogs and some people eat fish, close quote. <laughs> is that yeah. actually what she said? That is actually what she said. That was My mom was crying about me being gay, and my grandma was basically like, get over it. Some people eat hot dogs. Some people eat fish. And I, yeah, I was definitely shocked <laughs> because those are evocative metaphors. Uh-huh. And um, 
And she just, I mean, she never once had a problem with it. It was crazy. You know, we hear, especially back then, this is 2002, you think like older people are going to be even less accepting of gay people, but she really wasn't. She was just like, that's how the world is. People have different preferences. Let's go finish our lunch. And that was, you know, that was really revolutionary to me at that time because I didn't have anyone else in my life like that. Well, there's a crudeness to it, but there's also a... uh... Uh, an acceptance in there. That's that was really interesting. All right. So uh, one other thing that you know, I she was a sharecropper. She was a uh-huh. real plain talker. She she didn't have time to like mince words. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you moved away from uh, from where you were living. You lived in Oregon for most of the time, covered in the book, and then you went to Columbia, an Ivy League school, and you, you write about in the memoir about the difficulty of living in the South as someone who's gay, and yet, and tell me if I'm wrong, you're drawn back to it. How do you explain that? Oh, yeah. Have you ever heard about how salmon will, like, go out to the ocean, and then when it's time for them to die, they go back to the exact place where they were born? There's yeah. just, like, yeah. something, some homing beacon in them that's, like, you have to go back to the place where you belong. Yeah. I, I feel like it's that. Like, it's inexplicable or ineffable. Like, when I fly into Louis Armstrong Airport and I get out into the air something in me just like feels right like i just am like this is where i belong and like i just get like a whole new energy Uh and yeah i also feel really scared there like i i even in new orleans i get nervous for people to find out i'm gay and um and i don't like living in fear that way like where i live now portland you know it's a very high population of lesbians and um, people don't look twice at me and I can like, you know, if I'm dating someone, I can hold her hand and I can go into a store and, and shop for more androgynous clothes and no one thinks anything of it, that I can get my hair cut by pretty mm-hmm. much anyone into like a gay style. And this even, you know, those little things really add up where you're trying to think of like, who here is going to cut my hair the way I like it. Like I went to college in Mississippi and I would try to get my hair cut short. And they would always give me like a golden girl's old lady do because that was the only thing they could know to do for short hair was yeah, for yeah. women. And, you know, I don't want to look like an old woman. I want to look like a cool lesbian. <laughs> and it's harder to do that in the South. But you're still drawn back here. There's a there's something about it that still pulls you back. Oh, gosh. I mean, it's yeah, it's not just the air, too. I'm like one. of I actually go there quite a lot for work. Uh-huh. Um and I remember one of my more recent trips, I was going to a Whole Foods down there, and it was raining, and a man just got out of his car and, like, still opened my own car door for me and, like, yeah. held the umbrella yeah. over me while yeah. I was getting in my own car. Yeah. And that kind of sweetness doesn't exist other places. And, yeah. you know, I know people tend to paint the South as, like, oh, everyone's bigoted and hateful. But actually, there's so much more individual moments of humanity and caring and like maybe people here in Oregon don't want to take away my civil rights, but they're not going to necessarily bring food if I'm sick and they're not going to like check on me if I fall. It's just kind of a little more live and let live place. And like, I like how everyone waves at each other. If you're passing each other on the street and if you get in an elevator with each other, you talk to each other. That's true. Well, let me ask, Um, let me, nobody talks to you in the elevators here. Oh goodness. Well, let me end with this because we're about out of time. 
You know, we've actually just had a book banning fight here in, in what is St. Tammany Parish uh, about books that have reference to gay characters, et cetera. In the current environment, and I know you're writing for a newspaper in that, do you ever feel restrictions on what you can write about out of fear of retaliation or anything like that? Um, not in my job, although you're right. I was just looking at the book ban list. Um, my job now is to cover transgender people, and I think it was seven of the top ten were about of the most banned books were about transgender people. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> at the newspaper, I I can write about all of those things, and there, I mean, I will get a lot of blowback from people. I certainly get a lot of hate mail. Um, but I think that makes it even more important to write about. I mean, I think. My job is just to make everyone seem as human as possible and mm-hmm. to come at all people on all sides, honestly, with empathy and to understand where they're coming from and to try to give as factual information as possible so that people, you know, can understand yeah. each other yeah. better. But as my, my book has oddly not gotten banned. I've had a couple of friends in Louisiana who tried to get it. They were like wanting to get it banned because oddly, <laughs> if your book gets banned, you right. have more book sales. Right, right. Um, so I've had one of my friends in, in New Orleans, Lamar White. He's kind of a epic rabble rouser down there. He was like trying to figure out a way to get it banned so I could sell more books. There you go. <laughs> but well, nobody's banned me yet. Not yet. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the Writers Forum, and I've been privileged to speak with author Casey Parks about her new memoir, Diary of a Misfit. Casey, is there a website or other social media that folks can go to in order to get more information about you or about the book? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a website. It's just CaseyParks.com, and I'm on Twitter at CaseyParks. And then um, if you're really interested, I have an Instagram that's Casey Parks Writes, and I post some of the videos that we shot. Ah. So if you are interested to see what people look like and sound like from the book, I post clips there. So, All right. Well, thank you so much, Casey. Thank you.